Good morning, good morning. Acts chapter 20, if you would take your Bibles, please, and turn with me there. Craig, thank you and the rest of those leading us before the throne of grace in worship, a gift that you are using for God's glory. And I thank you for that. I thank each and every one of you for um, understanding and recognizing the importance of even being here this morning in God's house that this has significance, that our time together um, has eternal weight, and you understand that and recognize that. Um, With the Holy Spirit here, with God's Word here, God's people joined together with the single purpose of lifting up, of exalting and glorifying His name, it is an absolutely amazing uh, gift, but yet there's an amazing weight of responsibility that we handle this time together Uh, with the utmost of care and concern. Would you bow your heads, please, and and pray with me as we prepare our hearts to learn. Father, we are just so grateful for who you are, and we thank you, Lord, for, uh, Lord, just the blessings of this past week uh, that so many of us have seen your your loving hand um, upon us, ministering grace and comfort and extending mercy. Father, we, we think of today and we think of these few moments that we have together, uh, Lord, the, the preciousness of this time. And Lord, I would ask that we would not take these moments for granted, that our minds would not wander, that we would not be concerned about the lists and the many places we need to be and things we need to do over this upcoming week. But Father, that we would, we would pause together. And there would be, Lord, a singleness of mind and a desire, Lord, for all of us to have hearts that have been softened by your spirit to receive truth so that we produce fruit that brings glory to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, that that the gospel would go forward as a result of our faithful testimonies and of our faithful words to this community and that this community would be transformed. It would look different because of God's people learning even here now. Uh, Father, I do lift up um, the Myers. I I thank you so much for their ministering in the lives of so many people and their giftedness. And God, as we will miss them, I would ask, Lord, that you would be especially close to them, that you would protect them and and that we would be faithful as their brothers and sisters to to lift them up regularly before you, before the throne of grace in prayer. Um, Guide guide them and guard them. Father, we just ask that you would now guard my own lips and, and mouth and, and tongue, that I would say only what you desire, that, that only those words would come out that would, that would please you, that would glorify you. Uh, Father, we ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> we look this morning at the subject of the importance um, of being awake. Being alert, um, we saw, actually it was one week ago today, a lot of you were struck by this news, I, I was, of this Metro North train that was traveling in New York City in the Bronx that derailed. Um, the engineer, um, it is reported that the train was doing 82 miles an hour heading into a turn where a speed limit was 35 miles an hour. As a result of that, a number of cars derailed, four people were killed. 63 people were injured, 11 of them critically. They, they immediately began to examine and to um, interview the engineer, the man responsible for this train. 
Uh, he has been an engineer for more than 11 years with an absolutely impeccable record. He's worked for this company for 20 years. They tested him. There was no alcohol. There was no drugs. And they asked, what is it? What happened? What went wrong? And his response struck me. And he said this, I lost focus. And I dozed off. That, that, that's really the result. Literally, lives have been lost. This man's life has been forever altered. Why? He has been faithful. He was doing the job right. And something happened where he just lost focus. And I dozed off. I, I thought about the tragedy that surrounds that. And I thought about the urgency of who we are and where we are today. Who, who God has called us to be and where God has placed us. That there is this danger, and I have this dread that the church of Jesus Christ could lose focus and the church of Jesus Christ could doze off in an hour of need. In this book of Acts that I have just fallen in love with over the past uh, several months, the last portion centers, really focuses almost exclusively on the Apostle Paul and his journey to Jerusalem, and we will learn that he will be arrested there. And this, this talks about his final voyage to Rome, where he is tried, he is imprisoned, and ultimately he is martyred. He is killed because of his faith, his belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't know exactly, but probably beheaded outside the, the city of Rome. Probably about 10 years from where we're reading our text right here in Acts 20. It's probably 10 more years. Most of those years are going to be spent in prison where he writes many of the prison epistles. But we get a little bit of an idea. And we understand that this man, Paul, as we, in a sense, learn about his life and learn about the responsibility that we have of not losing focus, this man, Paul, stays on task the entire time. He never once dozes off. You're not going to see Paul as difficult as it may become for him. He doesn't fizzle out or flame out, but he remains this brilliant, shining light, a beacon, a ray of hope. It's an amazing example, an illustration of really how we can, how we should be doing ministry. We don't have the time. We won't look at every single place that he stopped, every person he talked to, every message that he preached in detail. But we'll concentrate on the major details of his life from here on out. And we will see throughout this, this, these last couple of chapters, there is this unwavering, unbending, uncompromising, unfaltering servant of God. Um, I love the way that Chuck Swindoll, I want to quote him a little bit. He wrote a book, a biography on the Apostle Paul called, called uh, A Man of, of Grit and Grace. But let, me, let me read to you a little bit about what Swindoll says, just as an illustration and example of, of this man and how this man Paul lived his life. The Apostle Paul, a converted terrorist, Inspired author, amazing teacher, and patient mentor, this colossal figure strode boldly onto the stage of the first century world. That's an indelible signature of greatness, never to be forgotten. He was a man of real grit, with a firmness of mind and spirit, and unyielding <clears throat> courage in the face of personal hardship and danger. Tough, tenacious, and fiercely relentless, Paul pursued his divine, divine mission with unflinching resolve 
And God used him mightily to turn the world around. But Paul's message and his style were also marked by gentle grace. This man who tormented and killed the saints of God understood and explained grace better than any of his contemporaries. Why? Because he never got over his own gratitude as a recipient of it. God's superabounding grace transformed this once violent aggressor into a humble but powerful spokesman for Christ. A man with that much grit desperately needed that much grace. I think about it, about the importance of you and I staying awake and alert. What, what is it that would keep us awake today? But like Paul, we understand and recognize the grace that we have received that we simply do not deserve. We see this today in the life and the ministry of the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 20. It kind of divides neatly into two major events. First of all, we see a, a miracle that Paul performs, and then we see a message that Paul preaches. And, and in these two events, we see a, a, a reminder and teaching us the importance of being awake and alert. We're going to look at the first event. It begins in verse 7 of Acts chapter 20, and we'll read down through verse 12. Here it is. On the first day of the week, when we gathered, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we, where we were gathered. And a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and he bent over him and taking him in his arms said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. Here's the first point. We see a miracle that brings hope in the midst of death. We hear, have this morning in our text, a miracle that brings hope in the midst of death. It begins with an interesting story that I think in all honesty Every single one of us can identify with, although we don't want to admit it, and it has to do with the subject of falling asleep in church. You have to realize I have the best view of everyone on a regular Sunday, and so I am well-versed, I am very familiar with the different sleepers that we have in local churches. We have what I call the, the bobbers, okay? They're desperately trying, and their head goes like this. Then we have the slumpers, okay? They're going to the side until their spouse will elbow them. So they go one side or the other. I, I remember I perfected as a student of the Word, sitting in class, I perfected the um, the more... Subtle, uh, perhaps what I call the academic approach, where I'm in prayer, and you, you generally pull one of these, and, and everyone thinks that you're reading. And then you have the ones as well. I, 
I call them the I don't care people. Their head is back. Their mouth is wide open. Okay, you have to realize reality takes place every single Sunday. We actually have this. I have, in my years of ministry, really begun to learn to not judge in this area. I know that you're saying, whoa, I really don't. And I learned the hard way. In our church that I pastored in New Hampshire, there was an elder who is a good man, a very, very good man, and a very godly man. His name was was Mark Adams. And I was not at... I was not at that particular church very long, and I noticed as he sat right here, probably where Tony and Marcy regularly sit, as soon as I began to preach, as soon as I began to preach, he would fall asleep every single time. And I was disturbed by this. I did not exactly know how to approach it, but as an elder sitting, I mean, it was pretty obvious and so I prayed about it. I want to be gracious. I want to be patient. So I addressed it one time. We were sitting alone in our office. And, and I said, Mark, I'm really concerned about how it, it really appears that as soon as I start to preach, you're just falling asleep right away. And he kind of chuckled. And he said, oh, oh you noticed. And I said, well, yeah, it's kind of hard. <laughs> it's kind of hard not to notice. And he said, oh, you're probably thinking about this past Sunday. When it looked like I fell asleep. And I said, well, yes. Matter of fact, that's exactly what I'm talking about. And he goes, oh, when you were preaching on Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11 through 14, right? On the warning against apostasy. How we're to guard ourselves against that by desiring the meat of the word and not the milk of the word. And then he quoted, ver- quoted verbatim, for everyone who lives on the milk of the word is unskilled in the word of righteousness. He goes, that's from verse 13, right? And I was like, what are you doing? And he's like, well, you have to realize that I actually have ADD. He goes, and everything can distract me. And so I close my eyes in order to listen better. And I actually have a bit of a bad ear. And so I will lean my good ear to you. And so what I thought was immediately him checking out. Okay. His eyes were closed and he was a tilter. Okay. He was aware of everything that was going on. Now, as we look at our subject today, it's not really the case. You'll see that very clearly. We have this idea, this emphasis, where the the, the miracle here is not even the, the major portion of this text. It's just an interesting event that, for some reason, Luke includes. What are the details? It says, on the first day of the week. This is not the seventh day. Okay, it's not the Shabbat that the Jewish people celebrate. It's not the Sabbath. It's the first day which has come to be known what as the Lord's Day. Interesting to note a little detail surrounding this. This is the day that what Christians celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ on the first day of the week. This is the time that we celebrate the arrival of the Holy Spirit on the first day of the week when the church was born in Acts chapter 2. You have to realize that Christians were not held under the sign of the Mosaic Covenant that says you need to observe the Sabbath day. Nowhere in the New Testament do we ever see that we are to observe the Sabbath day. So there's this understanding of the first day of the week. It was probably, it was probably later on in 2nd century, even 3rd century, that Sunday, okay, 
was the first day of the week that we recognize as the Lord's Day as the day that people actually worship. Tertullian actually wrote this. I thought it was interesting by way of a description of Christians. He says this, Christians are those to whom Sabbaths are strange. Well, well, Christians don't recognize the Sabbath. They recognize the first day of the week. They don't recognize Saturday as the Lord's Day. They recognize Sunday as the Lord's Day. Why do we say all of that? This was a day that everyone had to go to work. Everyone worked all day long. And so when it says that they met on the first day of the week, it actually gives a little bit more description. There's more description of this worship service than any other detailed description of an early worship service as far as what took place here. When it was first day of the week, they actually met in the evening because what? That's the only time that they could meet. It says that they were meeting in an upper room because they didn't have church buildings. They don't have the luxuries that we have today of driving and gathering in a place that is exclusively designed for this. So they're probably meeting at a home, most likely because they worked all day. Then they gather in the evening. They had a full meal together. They probably ate dinner together. We know that they recognized and celebrated, remembered the Lord's Supper, communion. And so all of those things, and it's very, very late. And Paul, who was going to be leaving on a journey the next day, was preaching. Another detail that it's rather... Interesting, it says that there's many lamps. It's dark outside, so there's many lamps in the room, which means what? It's warm in the room. So in this service, there's this young man. His name is Eutychus. He's sitting basically, I don't think it would pass code today, but he's sitting in the windowsill. Probably a little bit cooler, get a little bit of breeze. Perhaps he felt like he was tired, and so he was trying to stay awake, and he falls asleep during the message, falls out of the window, hits the street, and dies. As a pastor, I'm thinking, well, there's the ultimate lesson of what? The whole big idea is never, ever, ever fall asleep in church, right? That's really not the idea that's going on right here. Please understand, this is where grace is extended to all parties. Please note, this is not just one man, Paul, droning on hour after hour in a monotone voice. And that's why Eutychus drifts off. No, there's there's more factors that are involved here. Eutychus, it says, the word it says is, it's paeus. It's actually a boy. He's probably somewhere between 7 to 14 years old. So you've got a young guy here. He has just eaten a meal. It's warm inside. It's late. Okay? Every single thing stacks up that there is that nobody is going to stay awake here. And yet, for some reason, we're very difficult, we're hard on this guy because he drifts off. Going, no, there's, there's, there's what? Perhaps the spirit was willing, but the body is weak. Perhaps there's battles going on here. That's why, uh, Mom, can I sit up on, it's a little bit cooler over there. Sure, honey, just be careful, don't fall. Regardless of the circumstances, we know that something horrible, something absolutely horrible, the middle of a church service takes place. He falls... And there's this tragedy. It says that he falls three stories. I had the privilege of visiting this year in Jerusalem where they believed to be the upper room. And as we were in the upper room and we looked out, it's at least 30 feet. 
And so this boy, what, falls probably three, th- probably 30 feet to the street and he dies. And there's no doubt what. Luke, the author, the physician, gives very specific detail. He was taken up dead, which means what? He was not unconscious. He was not knocked out. It means what? He was dead. There was no longer life in him. Imagine the middle of the shrieks. His family probably is there. The, the wailing, the immediate tears, the, the, the racing down the stairs for someone to gather him up. No wonder it says very specifically, Paul actually has to go and he has to, to quiet them. He, he has to comfort them. We're not told the specifics other than the fact that it says that Paul went down. It says that he bent over. He picked him up. And he says this, do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. Did he touch him on the forehead? Did he pray over him? We, we simply do not know. Basically, the next thing that we're informed is what happened. They went all back to church. They literally, they went back upstairs and they continued their worship service. So much so that it says in the morning, in verse 12, they took the youth away alive and they were not a little comforted. Well, I can imagine. I can imagine the attention that this audience had as they were listening to Paul preach after what? He touches, prays over gathers up a young boy in his arms that was dead, and now he is alive. I would pretty much gather that no one else was going to be falling asleep in church at that service. Why is this here? What is this? This servant of God given a privilege to teach with everyone's undivided attention. What is he teaching? He's teaching what? That... Our God has victory over death. Does this mean that death no longer exists? No, the curse certainly exists. Is Paul not given an incredible, amazing opportunity to reveal the very truth, what? That our lives are to be in the complete hands, that we are to offer our complete trust to the giver and the taker of life. Is there not opportunity to be reminded of far worse than people falling physically asleep? There are what? There is a possibility, there is a danger of people spiritually falling asleep all over the place. Is there, is there not opportunity to learn from, to look at, to say far worse than falling from a window is falling into the hands of a wrathful God, just God? All over this, you see opportunities that we could grab from, we can gain, and we can learn what we have got to be awake. We've got to be alert. We've got to be aware as to who the Lord is and who we are. Matter of fact, you'll see, and this is where we want to concentrate for the bulk of our morning, that Paul, and this has got to be fresh in his mind, because as he goes on, he preaches this message to the Ephesian elders later on. In verse 28, he uses this phrase, pay careful attention. Verse 31, he uses this phrase, be alert, or what? Stay awake. There's an urgency to this message of the gospel that Paul wants to make sure everyone clearly is aware of. Stay awake. 
How important is that instruction today when there are so many things that are vying for attention that cause us to fall into slump, into some kind of stupor, and we let what? We let people cross our path who are dying and going to hell, and we have missed opportunities to speak truth and love into their lives. We see this this miracle that offers hope in the midst of death. Secondly, we see this message. I'm going to read this to you. A message that brings warning in the midst of danger. A message that brings warning in the midst of danger. <clears throat> Let's pick it up in verse 17. Here we go. Pick it up in verse 17 of Acts chapter 20. Now, from Miletus... He sent to Ephesus and he called the elders of the church to come to him. So again, he's moving on and then he meets with the Ephesian elders. When they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time. From the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my lit life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, here it is. Be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me in all things. I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. There is there is a message that is found here, a message that brings warning in the midst of danger. What happens? The apostle moves from Troas, and he decided instead of going to Ephesus, he sails past Ephesus, and he arrives at Miletus, and there he calls for the Ephesian elders to come to visit him. He has an important message to speak to the elders 
And so I know that there are elders represented, but it's a good reminder not only for the elders to hear, but for everyone else to hear. This is what is expected, and this is what elders are to, to, to behave like. This is how they are to behave. When they arrive, he begins, and he basically says, you know how I have lived among you. Serving the Lord with humility and with tears, with trials. He used this term twice. I didn't shrink away. I didn't, I didn't neglect opportunities that were given to me to declare to you anything that was profitable in teaching you in public and in private or from house to house. Now, to begin with, there's a relationship that you have to understand that existed. Remember, Paul had come from Ephesus where he had ministered with these men for two years. There's an intimacy that exists in this relationship. There's a warmth that, that exists within the relationship of Paul with these men that is probably closer than any other church leaders that he has ministered alongside of. And we know that there's this tug of emotionalism as well, because in verse 25 it describes what? This is the last time that we will ever meet. You and I both know, verse 25, you will never see my face again. Think about that. A very special scene that you and I have the privilege of kind of looking in and listening to. A very personal scene. And Lord willing, learning from. But, but, but what is it? Why, why the immediacy? What's the urgency? What could be so important? Paul does three things. He, he takes first and foremost an honest look back at the past. So he, as he's talking to these Ephesian elders, he says, remember this. I want you to look back. And he begins with this. You know how I lived. Talk about Paul. Alerts and aware. At all times. And he uses phrases like this. You know how I lived. He says, since I stepped foot in Asia. He seeks every single opportunity to offer what ministry. Paul is the type of person, I don't know, this has nothing to do with what we're thinking about with Christmas time and the time of the year. You know what comes to mind is, is the way that you perhaps go swimming. I know this is weird. How, how do we get here? I have no idea. This is a lot of you, okay, will will sit what on the side of the pool or 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 the lake or the river, whatever it is, and you will dip your toe into it and you will check the temperature of the water. And then after you dip your toe in two or three times, you will put your whole foot in. And then slowly you will what? You will sink your ankle and your ankle deep. And you're like, whoa. And then what? And then you go back in and then you're knee deep. And then it's up to your thigh. And then eventually it's waist deep. You're like, I have no other choice. That has nothing to do with our, our Apostle Paul of how he does ministry. Paul is this. Paul is all in. You know the, you know the people, they don't have to check the temperature of the water. You know what I'm talking about? Forgive me, but I'm kind of one of those guys. Sorry. You just kind of what? It's cannonball. It's a backflip. It's something. Just get in. I am all in, Paul says. This isn't a slow, gradual, you know me. Since the very first time we met, you know how I live. Since I have stepped foot in Asia, there's absolutely no hesitation or there's no reservation in his ministry. And yet, coupled alongside this, this all-in factor, Paul describes that he's ministering, and you know that because you've seen it. I've been ministering in tears. 
What kind of a ministry is that? I think there's the literal tears that come from ministry by way of the pain that was inflicted upon Paul, the physical suffering that he endured. No doubt, rocks thrown at his head hurt and you will cry. But these aren't the tears that he's talking about. You know me. You know how I've ministered since I've been here. You know I have been weeping day and night for the lostness and over the sinfulness of those around us. That's what Paul talks about. You know me. You know how I have wept for every single person that does not claim the name of the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior who has walked across our path. Remember this. Remember me, Paul says, but far important than remember me, remember the message. He says, I did not shrink away. I didn't stop. I didn't cease. I didn't withhold from declaring to you. And I love this. Anything that was profitable, both in public or in private, what? And I spoke, and there's this phrase in verse 21, the repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, which means what? I am all in. I will look for every single opportunity. That's the way I do ministry, and that's the way I want you to do it. That's what Paul's saying. I pause on that and I think about the tears that Paul sheds and I'm immediately convicted that I still do not weep enough for those that are lost. We, together as a church, regularly rubbing shoulders with people that are lost And we smile and nod and pat them on the back and let them go to hell. Paul says, no, no, we can't think like that. We can't be like that. It's not how we do ministry. We weep over the lost and we look for every single opportunity to speak a message of repentance. Of what? Of falling on your face before a holy God and recognizing that their only hope is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only does Paul look back, but what does he do? He takes an accurate view of the present situation that he is in. An accurate view of the present. The second portion that the apostle includes in his final address to these precious friends. These are elders. These are brothers. These are colleagues. They're co-workers. It's just Paul being absolutely vulnerable. He opens up and he is gut honest. Think about this. I'm going to Jerusalem. I've been constrained by the Holy Spirit. I'm going because I've been called to go. I don't know what will happen to me except this one thing. It's going to be what? Imprisonment and affliction. That's what awaits. I have to leave you. He could stay here. He's got his friends. He's comfortable. He knows one another. This is so much fun, and we are so affected. No, Paul recognizes that he is not his own. Later he writes, I have been bought with a price. I will glorify God in my body and my spirit, which are his. I must go. I don't know really what awaits, but all I know that what awaits, be perfectly honest, is misery. On a physical view, what awaits me is affliction and imprisonment. Now think about it. You and I. Well, if you go over there, horrible things will happen. Where do you think we're going? (laughs) We're going the exact opposite. Not so with Paul. He is gut honest and he says what? I don't count 
I do not account my life of any value to myself. He says that in verse 24. I'm going there and I don't account my life of any value. That is so foreign from the way you and I think. It's so foreign from the slop philosophies of this world. It says, you are so important. No, Paul says, it doesn't matter. And he says this, if only I finish my course. I just want to finish. I just want to finish my course. And what does he say? He says, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Wow, this is a he is he is on task. He is alert, aware as to what that he is not losing focus. He's not dozing off. He's not drifting off. He knows exactly is what he tells the Ephesian elders. Not only is Paul telling the Ephesian elders, I believe that the Holy Spirit is telling you and I this morning exactly the same thing. Think about this. Paul says this. I did not shrink from declaring to you, and I have this word underlined in my Bible, the whole counsel of God's. Wow, do you, well, I didn't shrink from, from revealing to you, speaking to you the counsel. No, the whole counsel of God. Why does he include this? Because it is so easy, it is so easy for elders and teachers and leaders and even parents to tell what children what they want to hear as opposed to what they need to hear. Big difference. Paul says, I am convicted and I am convinced you are to hear everything. There's a condition. He actually refers to it in his very last, the very last letter that he writes in 2 Timothy, in the very last chapter that he writes, literally perhaps days before his head is removed from his body. He says there's a condition. It's called itching ears. And he says this. Listen carefully. 2 Timothy chapter 4. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Is that not a description as to what is happening today? The myths of relativism and pluralism and secularism. Tell them what they want to hear. Paul says, no, I will not shrink from doing that. I'm not going to do that. And you are not to do that. Present time demands declaring, understanding, and emphasizing what? It is not about you. The truth of the matter is there is a lostness and there is a depravity and there is a total need for a loving Savior and a sufficiency alone is in Christ and in Christ alone. See what Paul does? He, he looks back. You know me. He looks present. And now thirdly and finally, he gives a clear warning about the future. He speaks very clearly about the future in this farewell address. He, he concludes it by warning the leaders specifically of the dangers that will exist. Again, he's thinking what? This is going to happen. Prepare for this. He's looking forwards. 
And he says, what your responsibility is as elders, as men, as leaders to protect the local church. Verse 29, what's going to happen? Fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. It, it gives more details. From among you, interesting that it says this, from among you will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. There's a tactic that is seen literally in the way that a wolf hunts a sheep. Amazing event took place this past August. Listen to this. August the 21st, just of this past summer, 2013, if you have any doubts about the gray wolf's hunting ability or its impact on livestock, talk to the sheep herders in Idaho, where two wolves recently zeroed in on a flock of 2,400 sheep near Idaho Falls. Listen to this. Two wolves with a massive flock literally killed 176 sheep. You know how most of the sheep died? They suffocated from trampling on one another, trying to get away from the wolves. They literally stampeded. Listen to this. They actually examined this scene Ten sheep died from bite wounds, and only one was partially consumed. Well, what does this tell us? This is, this is an idea that we see very clearly. That there's this wolf that desires, and yet we know that ultimately there's, there's a sense of confusion, there's a sense of fear, there's a sense of attacking, a sense of stampeding one another because of the enemy from without. And Paul says, he actually uses this picture, he says, from among you will come wolves who will do a tremendous job of just destroying and causing panic and death within the folds. It's how the enemy attacks with subtleties and with silent tactics. What? To distract and to distort, to take our focus off of what is happening And that's why he says in verse 31, be alert, be alert, be alert. I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up. What is, what is he concluding his message with? What is it that is measured? What is it, where is it that we go? We go to this. I commend you to God and to the word of God's. Everything gets measured. Everything you hear from me, everything you hear from this pulpit, everything you learn in the Sunday school gets measured to this. It's what we need to be doing. He actually gives a way that this can be revealed in evidence that this is actually taking place. And again, it's a focus, what? Not on ourselves, but on other people. In a sense, in evidence that we know that we are concerned about the truth of God's word. And he, and he leaves with this statement, by working hard in this way, we help the weak. And we remember the words of the Lord's. And the words are in reds. Jesus Christ said what? It is more blessed to give than to receive. 
Paul concludes the entire message here to the Ephesian elders, these people that are so precious to him. And he says, don't be concerned about yourself. Be concerned about other people. The evidence that what we are founded and grounded upon the truth of this word right here is by what is is offering others ultimately a message of truth and what those things that they need so that they can continue whether or not it's a ministry to the sick, whether or not it's a ministry to the poor, whether or not it's a ministry to the imprisoned, those who, what, are weak. There's a touching scene. We won't go into the details, but basically, they, they walk together down to the docks. They hug, they pray, there's tears. And they leave Paul on the ship as he sails off. And we get a glimpse, we get a glimpse of this ministry. We get a glimpse of this miracle. We get a, a reminder of this message. It is so important for you and I to understand what we are called to do, what God has done for us, our responsibility of, of knowing our marching orders, of being alert and awake at all times, just like Paul finishing the course well. By what? Being more concerned about other people and sharing with them the truth of the gospel and perhaps assisting with the physical needs of those that are thirsty or those that are hungry as an evidence that this is God's work. This is not our work. Be on guard. Be alert. Understand the enemy seeks to destroy. But we know that victory ultimately and always is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this man. Paul, I thank you, Lord, for his testimony, his tenaciousness, his toughness. I thank you, Lord, that we have the privilege of kind of listening into this very intimate scene of looking upon it and seeing the importance for us to be aware as to what's going on around us, to be on guard, Lord, not to, to fall into panic, not to step on and trample others. Help us, Lord, to understand those that are in need around us and for us to to realize our responsibility of speaking truth to them and offering whatever is necessary so they see and hear the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, to do that. Help us, Lord, to do that well. In your name we pray. Amen.